Hi everyone, and welcome to our weekly podcast brought to you by VJ Oncology. Today, we'll be covering exciting updates from TTLC 2024, which focused on the latest in targeted therapies for lung cancer. We will be covering a range of exciting research topics, from novel treatments for EGFR mutant lung cancer to the emerging role of ctDNA as a biomarker. To begin, we have Bruna Pellini from Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida, who will discuss the utility of circulating tumor DNA as a biomarker of progression in lung cancer. I'll be covering the applications of ctDNA and the uh, new findings that were presented last year in some of the landmark of phase three trials looking into ctDNA to use in molecular progression as a biomarker for molecular progression, as well as some of the ongoing trials looking into escalating therapy based on this biomarker, also in the targeted therapy setting, not only in the immunotherapy setting, because we do have some open studies, and also briefly talk about the potential of implementing this in population that undergoes surgery for their early stage lung cancer and the barriers that have prevented us from deploying this to clinic at this time. For many years, we had small studies looking into the prognostic value of ctDNA, and we know it's a prognostic biomarker. So last year at ASCO, Natalie Vogues and myself, we presented data from two phase three studies. Natalie's group presented data on Empower Lung One, where patients received the semiplumab monotherapy for a non-small cell lung cancer with high PDL1 expression, so over 50% of PDL1 expression. And what her group found is that when you look at ctDNA clearance at three weeks and nine weeks, you can clearly see a difference in outcomes for patients that have cleared the ctDNA from cycle one to that time point and the ones that didn't, suggesting that you probably could use that time point to then change therapy before you even see radiographic progression, right? And they also did a combined score analysis with imaging that made the bio even more popular. My study, we looked at samples from Empower 131 that was for patients with squamous cell carcinoma of the lung treated with carboplatin, nabpaclitaxel, and atezolizumab. And what we saw is that the dynamics of ctDNA, they do matter for risk stratification. And the time point that we found was the best for you to potentially make a decision of changing therapy would be after three cycles. And even if you want to look into a more cost-effective uh, strategy where you just look at one single time point and you don't take into consideration the dynamics of changes and you just say it's going to be positive versus negative as cycle for day one, then the biomarker remain very prognostic, independent of other clinical factors, including uh, pathological features such as PDL1 expression. So showing this is an independent biomarker, right? So Dr. Anagnostos group at Hopkins, they started a study where they are gonna evaluate ctDNA clearance after two cycles of pembrolizumab for patients that have a high PDL1 expression and the ones that 
have the ctDNA still detectable, they have not cleared, they're going to randomize to addition of chemo versus continuing pembrolizumab alone. Because the hypothesis is that the patients that have not cleared, they have a high risk for disease progression and shorter survival. So you should intervene earlier before you see the radiographic evidence of disease progression. So that's one of the open trials in the immunotherapy space. Next up, we have Monica Chen from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, who will comment on the role of osimertinib with chemotherapy as initial treatment for patients with metastatic EGFR mutant lung cancers with concurrent TP53 and RB1 alterations. This is a clinical trial looking at patients with metastatic EGFR mutant lung cancer who have TP53 and RB1 mutations. We know these patients are at high risk of transforming to small cell. And we wanted to see if if we gave these patients osimertinib plus platinotoposide, if we'd be able to eradicate small cell clones, prevent transformation, and hopefully improve patient out, outcomes. So that was the, the premise of our trial. In terms of what we found, we, we saw 11 patients that were enrolled in the trial. The majority of these patients had adenocarcinoma. There was a patient with squamous histology and a patient with adenosquamous histology as well. In terms of how well they did, the median progression-free survival for these patients was 16 months and overall survival was 38 months. And unfortunately, the transformation was, was quite high in these patients. They were followed serially for several years. The five of 11 patients, unfortunately, did transform despite getting this treatment. In terms of what, what's next, we... These are hard to find patients, and we have serial samples of tumor and plasma at different time points before they started osimertinib, before they started chemo, after they completed the chemo, and upon progression. Lineage plasticity is a, a hot topic and something we're, we're learning more and more about, but it's very complex. And so we have a, a huge team at Sloan Kettering of, of brilliant scientists, and we're doing small cell subtyping on these samples, whole exome sequencing and single cell RNA sequencing. And our hope is to better understand what drives some of these patients to transform and what doesn't. Finally, we have Timothy Burns from University of Pittsburgh, who will give his detailed insights on non-TKI treatment options for EGFR mutant lung cancer. At the targeted therapy in lung cancer meeting this year, I have the opportunity to discuss really a number of kind of non-TKI-based therapies for EGFR. And this has really been kind of years in the making. Obviously, since, you know, the over about 15, you know, 15 years or so, we've had really TKI or tyrosine kinase-based therapies for EGFR mutant disease. And, you know, there was always a question, would we ever have anything beyond that? Some of the early agents, do we do have monoclonal antibodies that are approved in colorectal cancer and were briefly approved in squamous that target EGFR, but they were never really as effective, anywhere near as effective as the tyrosine kinase inhibitor. So over the years, we've developed better tyrosine kinases. And so what I think is really exciting is we've had a number of studies either published or presented and within the last, I'd say, four or five months that are likely to change the landscape of how we treat EGFR mutant disease in the coming months. In fact, we may have an approval relatively soon, given the time, the FDUFA dates for the FDA. But, and so my talk really focuses on where do these agents fit? So I think kind of the first take home message is 
we actually do have agents that will play a role in the treatment of BGFR disease, and that's good news for our patients. So uh, the first agent that I really am going to touch on is an, 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 an a bispecific antibody against both MET and EGFR. It's called amivatinib. It's actually FDA approved for EGFR exon 20 insertion mutant patients, but we've known that it has activity after osimertinib since 2019. So, you know, five years later, we will now have an approval in that setting where we had data five years ago. So it's been kind of a long path for its approval in in typical EGFR mutations, but I think we're narrowly there. And so there are kind of two major studies that I have looked at amabatinev in kind of a phase three setting. The first was actually in the first line setting, combining it with a, another tyrosine kinase called lazartinib, which is also a third generation irreversible TKI, similar to osimertinib. Does have a slightly different side effect profile, potentially has more neutropenia, definitely increased risk of um, thrombosis, and so anticoagulations required. And so the the one of the questions was asked, well, what if we move amabatinib plus lazartinib versus osimertinib in the first slide setting? And I think to date, that was the Mariposa study. To date, the, stu- the data that's been presented has shown that there is a progression-free survival benefit with as a ratio of 0.70. And, you know, a, a benefit of about six or seven months of progression-free survival. There are benefits across all subgroups. The overall survival data is immature. And, and, and this study raises some questions in the field of should we be using these agents in the first-line setting? And, and some of those questions involve, is lazartinib adding something to amivatinib, as we'll get into in our next trial? And also the toxicity, the higher toxicity we may see with this combination, as well as the fact that the question, there was no crossover allowed to amivatinib or amivatinib laser or lazartinib, which raises the issue with not, I think, as we'll see, that amivatinib should be part of a patient's treatment course. So but this trial won't answer that because essentially what this trial is saying is amivatinib first or never, right? And so really the comparison should be amivatinib first versus amivatinib later. And so I think that's still a debate, and I think it will be a debate actually at the, the target lung meeting of whether we should be moving this to the first-line setting or sticking with tyrosine kinase, such as osimertinib alone in the first-line setting. I think which is very exciting, and I think it will will get a lot of uptake, is that there was a trial called Mariposa 2, which looked at patients that then progressed on osimertinib, and this combined chemotherapy in a second-line setting, which would be a standard of care, amivatinib plus chemotherapy, and then amivatinib plus chemotherapy plus lazartinib. There was some modifications to this study. In fact, because of toxicity, they weren't able to give lazartinib up front with the chemotherapy and amivatinib. It had to be added in later parts of the study at cycle five. And so interestingly, what they found was a couple things. One is that compared to chemotherapy, both the amivatinib chemotherapy and lazartinib amivatinib and chemotherapy were significantly better with hazard ratios of 0.48 and 0.44 respectively. The response rate was dramatically higher, so 36% for chemo. Whether it was chemo-ami or chemo-ami lasers, 64 and 63%, clearly increased duration response. What they did notice, though, was that in the lazartinib arms, there was significantly more toxicity than what you saw for 
the amibat and have a, a chemo arm and chemo as well. So there does seem, and then I think what was quite dramatic was the rationale originally, because remember I told you in 2019, we had data for amibat and alone. The rationale for adding a TKI was this issue with potentially intracranial uh, with brain metastasis and would amivatinib alone be effective against it? Interestingly, they showed both in patient, they in both intracranial progression-free survival was almost identical, regardless of whether you had lazartanib or not. Both were better than chemotherapy. And then if you even took patients that had a history of brain mets and no brain radiation, again, this was identical, suggesting that lazartanib is really not adding a lot in terms of CNS prevention and treatment. And so like we, what we'll get is in the second line standard, a new kind of non-TKI-based regimen would be chemo with the amivatinib. So that's um, that's obviously good news for our patients. So I think the take-home message is that amivatinib will play a course, will play a role in a patient's treatment, whether it's first line, which I think is more debatable, or second line, where I think there's very little debate after osimertinib that this would be a new standard of care. There are, I'll, I, and I won't get into it today, but there are some other emerging kind of EGFR met bispecific and tri-specific antibodies that are being tested. Those are kind of earlier along, but something to keep in mind that we may have more drugs in this class and maybe we'll get a better drug in this class. The, the next agent that I think is quite exciting that I think will also have an approval relatively soon is actually a HER3 targeted agent called Pachutamab Deruxatecan, or HERB3-DXD. And so this is an antibody drug conjugate against HER3 with a typosomerase uh, payload and a, and a clevical, clevical linker. And so HER3 is obviously very important for EGFR singling, and that's been known for quite a while. And so what they showed in the Herthina Lung 01 study, and these were patients... Essentially, all had seen osimertinib. Many had seen a platinum, an, an antioxidant platinum doublet. Some had seen immunotherapy as well. Fifty-one had percent had prior brain meds, and thirty-two percent of baseline. So, heavily pretreated population. And Dr. Yu presented this meeting, and what they found was really a significant response rate across the board in those with both EGFR dependent and independent, your response rates range from about 32 to 37%. Slightly lower if it was EGFR independent, about 27%, but still activity, progression-free survival of 5.5 and OS of 11.9 months and really heavily pretreated patients. So again, this is likely gonna be another option in this patient population. Now, where it does it, will it fit in earlier lines of therapy? I think that's still an open question and that's actively being explored. The other thing that we all worry about is again, brain metastasis. And there was actually very good CNS control with this ADC. So traditionally we worried about whether we would get good control of CNS disease. The intracranial response rate is very similar to the extracranial response rate around 33%. Site of first progression, it was 21% of patients with a history of brain mats and 3% of patients without history of brain mats. So definitely a drug that does appear to be active by itself, you know, in, in, in this later line setting. So already I've talked about two drugs that I would, I, it's not much of a speculation that they're, they are under review by the FDA and they likely will gain approval sometime this year, I imagine. There are other similar drugs. So you can think, well, HER3 is a good target. Why don't we combine it with 
uh, EGFR. So there's actually an EGFR HER3 bispecific antibody drug conjugate that's being tested called BL. BO1D1. Again, very early days in this, but presented at ACR and ASCO this year and in kind of heavily pretreated patients who had received osimertinib, platinum doublet, a very nice and kind of robust response rate. We'll see how that holds up in larger data sets, but the response rate was over 60%. So again, yet another agent that I think further down the road may have options. And then the final agent I talked about was actually not really directly targeting EGFR or the each or one of something the EGFR pathway, such as HER3. It was actually a drug that's been tested in bladder and other cancers and is being tested in lung, a drug called Dadopotopamab peroxitecan or DADO-DXD, which is a trope 2 ADC. So trope 2 is a tumor antigen that's expressed in a number of tumor types. It is actually interestingly expressed more commonly in EGFR mutant disease. And so this was tested in, a, again, a heavily pretreated population. 72% had greater than three lines of therapy. 51% had brain mets. And 60% have more than two TKIs. So the question is, what do we do after we've kind of run through the obvious options? And I'll say they actually had a reasonable response rate in the tropion lung 05 study. Again, 78 patients with EGFR and response rates of 43% or response of seven months, PFS of six months. And so I think that's when we're getting to the setting where we're talking about using you know single agent chemotherapies, I think that it seems to be promising data. We'll have to see with um, kind of in the phase three and if they have in, in greater in later studies, if they actually have, if this holds up. And so again, that was kind of, for the most part, the drugs that I did cover, I did briefly touch on, since I was covering non-TKI-based therapies, really kind of the emerging role of immunomodulatory agents in EGFR mutant disease. The short answer is there's nothing yet that is close to approval, but as we know, Patients, EGFR mutant patients do not respond to PDL1 or PD1 or even CTL4 single agent. There is some small benefit seen with this IM Power 015 regimen where you had carboplatin, paclitaxel, bevacizumab, and atezo, at least in subsets of these with sensitizing EGFR mutations. We do have the survival data for that now, though a subsequent trial, which called ATLAS, really did not see an overall survival benefit, although their comparator arm was different and it was in an Asian population. But there are a number of drugs that are being explored in this space, immunomodulatory drugs in this space. And I you know, will discuss that briefly in my talk, but nothing that I think is close to being practice changing today, but maybe hope for the future. Thank you to our speakers and to you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and subscribe on your favourite podcast app, including Apple, Podbean and Spotify, so we can continue to deliver our expert-led content directly to you. Follow us on Twitter at VJ Oncology to join in the conversation and visit vjoncology.com for the latest updates in the field. Music